0: Welcome to DATCast, the official podcast of the Design Automation Conference. We're here because design automation is something that happens year-round, not just for a week in the summer. Hosting the podcast, this is Eric Seligman from Cadence Design Systems, along with Rich Edelman from Siemens EDA. As usual, we're starting this podcast with a DAC moment, an exciting or interesting moment from a past DAC recalled by one of the many attendees. Today is kind of unusual in that the subject of our DAC moment is the same person who we're doing for our main interview. He just gave a DAC moment during his interview that was so perfect, I just had to use it for this segment. Today's interview subject is Kurt Koitzer, a legendary figure in the EDA world, who is one of the major uh, forces behind the early years of Synopsis, as well as having made significant contributions to machine learning in recent years. Let's listen to Kurt's DAC moment to start out the podcast.
1: One vignette that particularly stands out for me is in, in 1989. I mentioned I was uh, I was at Bell Labs, but I, I joined UC Berkeley's CDA group as a visiting industrial fellow from Bell Labs. And during that time, I started a collaboration with two students, uh, Sharon Malk and Srinivas Devadas, and the three of us continued to collaborate very actively over the years. And we really enjoyed each other's company and there, and working together. And there was there was nothing you know strategically thought out or premeditated about it. And then somehow, 24 years later, at the 50th Design Automation Conference, there was an award ceremony in which diverse awards were given, one for the authors of the 10 most cited papers of the 50-year history of the conference, another for the 10 authors with the most overall citations in the 50-year history of the conference, another for having won three or four best paper awards in the first 50 years of the conference. And there we were, all, all three of us, sitting at the same table and receiving awards in each of those categories, as well as other awards. Some of this was work on work we collaborated with. Much of it was work that we did independently or collaborating with others. But, um, you know, I, I, I think it's easy to say work with people you really like and energize you. But I think this is a validation of that. It was one of the most touching moments in my life. These are both great guys. We, we had so much time, so much fun working together. As I say, we just never really thought, where, where is all this heading? And then, and then to see, gosh, I mean, I, I guess it, it could have hardly gone any better. It, it really worked out well for us.
2: Hi, everyone. It's Debbie Dac. We're excited to be gearing up for the 60th DAC, a milestone year you don't want to miss. Advanced registration and the program is now live on DAC.com, And who doesn't love DAC? Complimentary I Love DAC passes are now available, which give you access to all keynotes, visionary, Sky Talks, and Tech Talks, plus networking receptions and both floors of the exhibit hall. Don't wait and register today at DAC.com.
0: Well, now that you've heard his DAC moment, let's listen to the rest of our interview with Kurt. Yeah, so thanks for speaking to us Kurt. Um, so first question I had just um, I came up with while I was reviewing our LinkedIn uh, bio before we uh, prepared to invite you for this interview. I noticed that your choice of an undergraduate college uh, Maharishi International University seems a bit unusual in comparison to most other aspiring engineers. So how how is your education different from a typical one and how did that affect your subsequent career.
1: Uh-huh. So, so that, so that stood out to you, huh? <laughs> I guess I'm not surprised. Um, I, I guess the story goes all the way back to my early childhood. Um, my grandmother had a book on yoga that that fascinated me as a nine-year-old, and I remember I used to do a few of the poses in the book and sit in the lotus position. And I had, I, even at that time, I had some sense that these yogis were onto something. And um, then a few years later, the Beatles got into transcendental meditation. Um, so, in my sophomore year of high school, I started Transcendental Meditation, and in the summer of my junior year, I did my first month long uh, meditation retreat, and um, I was fortunate enough to get a National Merit Commendation, um, and I had already taken multivariate calculus at the local university extension, so I had some good options for college, but my friends going off to, to big schools and coming back said it was, it was just like high school, uh, except you could cut classes. And I decided I, I really wanted to do something different, uh, so I went to Marshi International University. Um, retrospectively, there, there are two things about that education that positively affected my career. The first was our math major was taught using a technique called the Moore method. And in that approach, you don't have textbooks. Uh, you, you simply have axioms. And then you have to prove the lemmas and theorems yourself. So in a very real sense, you're doing research from the very beginning. You're not memorizing facts and formulas for a test or something. And the second is that every two to three months, we would do a one month meditation retreat. And uh, it may not be obvious, Um, perhaps you can relate, but for me, the ability to sit quietly for extended periods is, is important in doing research. And for my more theoretical work on time and testing, the ability to sit with the unknown for a long time was really important. Um, David Lynch, who, who, as it happens, um, you know, the film director, uh, is also a practitioner of transform meditation, and he has a great quote. Uh, if you want to catch big fish, you have to go deep.
3: Okay, so from there, what led you uh, to get into electronic design automation?
1: You know, from, from Marish International University, I, I can't say that, you know, the the, the, the doors to graduate programs were were flying open to me but um, I did get admitted and even with a little fellowship to Indiana University so I was, I was studying computer science in a PhD program at Indiana University and um, it was an interesting program because we didn't have an E department even on the campus um, so the CS department had developed its own systematic way of teaching hardware design pretty much at the uh, register transfer level Uh, In the summer of my second year of grad school, everyone seemed to be going out for internships and, you know, I I have this habit of kind of thinking, what's the best possible outcome here? So I'd always dreamed of working at Bell Labs, so I just sat down and typed, and I, I do mean typed on a typewriter, a cover sheet, and sent my resume to Bell Labs Recruiting. Retrospectively, I really had no idea how naive that was at the time. But synchronistically, a Bell Labs HR person named Libby Morazzo, I still remember her name somehow, had just gotten a call from John Golombeski who ran a design automation group to support the creation of hardware in the transmission transmission systems portion of Bell Labs. And as I later learned, uh, she got that phone call uh, just before she opened my resume. And John was looking for for someone who was strong in software but also understood hardware, at least at the register transfer level. And Libby thought I was a perfect, fit. John hired me. I had a great time that summer writing a fault simulator. When I went back to school, um, I didn't pursue EDA in my PhD because no faculty in Indiana were working in that area and already had some momentum in parallel computing. But when I graduated, I interviewed in many departments at Bell Labs. My job talk on my PhD research was about uh, realizing parallel algorithms on, on on networks. And I showed ways you could reduce the number of parallel processing elements for certain numerical problems, but achieve the same latency. And I still remember at the end of my job talk, someone asked, can you describe these processors in more detail, the CPU, the memory hierarchy, and so forth? And I said, well, these are, these are theoretical processors. And they replied, well, theoretical processors don't cost anything. So why do we care about using fewer of them? You know, I, I quickly batted back an answer to kind of save face, but the question really hit me. You know, what was the point of my dissertation? What, what real impact was it ever going to have? On the other hand, I saw CAD could really have an impact. So I resolved to join a CAD group at Bell Labs among the groups that I was interviewing. And after briefly working with Steve Johnson uh, in, in, at Bell Labs, who was the yak and portable C compiler, fairly famous guy, um, I joined Al Dunlop's group, an EDA group in Bell Labs research in Mary Hill.
0: How did you get into logic synthesis at Bell Labs?
1: So, after some initial projects in Al Dunlop's group, I went to different design groups at Bell Labs and I looked at their problems. And I noticed that at least five different groups had the challenge of how to take logic level designs and map them into a way that efficiently used Bell Labs' massive uh, 400 cell standard cell library. They had, I, I think, for for many years, the largest standard cell library in the business. And because the library was so big, it wasn't even easy to use in a a schematic entry. So each of the five groups had developed their own ad hoc methods to do the mapping, but I wasn't convinced of any of the solutions were fully utilized. The big library were very efficient. So coming from my CS background, uh, in contrast to kind of this deep contemplation of research problems, um, I'd done some advanced work in compilers and from the very first time I looked at this problem, I, I saw it as very similar to the problem of taking an abstract syntax tree in a compiler, which was kind of similar to a netlist and mapping it into a series of instructions, which were similar to cells. And uh, unfortunately, I couldn't pursue that observation right away because I just didn't have the programming skills to write all that myself. But um, Fortunately, uh, a programming whiz kid from University of Toronto named Steve Chang did a summer internship in LA host group at Bell Labs. And he wrote a very general tool called Twig, which did exactly what he needed. The user defined a library of tree patterns, and then a, and then given a complex tree, Twig would optimally cover the tree with patterns, and you, could, you even can have programmable cost functions. So with that, I was pretty able Able to pretty quickly create a working technology mapping system that took an arbitrary netlist of logic gates or even Boolean equations and very efficiently mapped that into Bell Labs' massive library. I used Twig to create a tool I called Dagon, and I began to try to get some customers inside the company. And that was a little bit of a random walk, but um, at at Al Dunlop's encouragement, I took a long trip to Allentown, Pennsylvania, to give a talk to IC designers about Dagon. And the audience was, you know, I grew up in the Midwest, so the audience was characteristically quiet. Um, but after my talk, a designer named Mark Cure came up and said he was willing to give the tool a try. And that led to a very successful collaboration. We, 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 did, we, we built a lot of circuits with, with that. And Mark gave me advice I continue to, uh, to use as well as to give in this day. Um, a good talk is where you go back to your desk and do something better. Uh, at the same time, a senior researcher at Bell Lab's research named Wolfgang Fickner told me, if you really want to get famous inside Bell Lab research, uh, you can't just help out development groups. You, you've got to get famous outside. So I sent off my paper to the Design Automation Conference, and Dagon was about literally uh, 100 to 1,000 times faster than the rule-based expert systems approaches, uh, such as Art Juice and David Gregory Socrates. Uh, I actually reached out to Art, and he was encouraging about the work, um, and the academic leaders of logic synthesis at the time, Alberto San Giovanni, Vincent Tully, Bob Brayton, Gary Hachtel, all took an interest in the work, and I, I was really kind of welcomed into the logic synthesis community. At that time, open source wasn't at all a norm, uh, and Bell Labs wouldn't allow me to re, uh, release either Dagon or, or Steve Chang's Twig. Um, however, Alberto had a student, Rick Waddell integrate the Dagon algorithm, Together with some improvements from his dissertation in their uh, MIS system at Berkeley, and that technology, uh, together with uh, Rick and Alberto, ultimately made its way into uh, Synopsis.
3: Okay, and uh, speaking of Synopsis, I guess you uh, you joined Synopsis uh, in '91, and uh, this time between uh, Bell Labs and Synopsis. Uh, what what did you do
1: then, and how did you how did you make the decision to leave Bell Labs? So the truth is, from the time that I joined uh, Bell Labs, uh, I was I was worried that the the world was passing me by. Um, literally, one of the first books I read when I was there was George Gilder's The Spirit of Enterprise, in which he said that the epicenter of technical innovation was moving from the big industrial research labs like Bell Labs and T.J. Watson to startups. Uh, that gave me some pause, and then even before I arrived, it turned out one of the department heads in the lab that I joined uh, by the name of Misha Burek had just taken his team to create a startup called Silicon Design Labs that ultimately merged with Silicon Compilers. So all this had me a little nervous about whether I was at the right place from the very beginning, but uh, now once I settled in and I really enjoyed the opportunity to focus on research problems in EDA, and uh, one of those was technology mapping, as I mentioned. And um, my, my paper Dagon got accepted in the 1987 Design Automation Conference. And we had a tradition at Bell Labs Research of always rehearsing our talks before we delivered them. It was kind of a trial by fire. If we got through that audience, then we could feel pretty safe with any other audience in the world. And as it turns out, Tom Blank, who was a talent scout for a venture capital firm called Merrill, Pickard, Anderson & Iyer, which was actually went on to evolve into Benchmark, he was visiting the very day I gave my review talk on DAGLON, and he was so impressed, impressed by it, you know, because of the speed improvements and so forth relative to expert system approaches, and it also gave better results. So when Tom Blank got back to California and and, and talked to VC firm, the next thing I knew, a gentleman by the name of uh, Harvey Jones was flying out to meet me at Bell Labs in New Jersey, and when I you know, asked around and learned who Harvey Jones was, former CEO of DAISY, I, I kind of gulped. Uh, but in my youthful arrogance, that didn't stop me from uh, lecturing him over lunch. Uh, first, I, I told him that logic synthesis was indeed going to take over the IC design process and become the dominant approach. But second, just as no one had made, figured out how to make money off of compilers, no one was going to make money from logic synthesis. It was going to be ubiquitous, but, but, but not, not, proprietary to anyone or a or, or money maker, uh, They were just going to use the, the open source software that was already available from Berkeley. So I guess Harvey believed my first point, but not the second because soon he was joining Art DeJuice and Art's team as, as CEO, the first CEO of I think originally called Optimal Solutions and then very soon uh, Synopsis. So to get to the transition, still uh, Harvey and the founders uh, remembered me fondly and at least once a year, I'd have a discussion about joining Synopsys. And then in late 1990, Rick Riddell visited me at Bell Labs and told me about the impressive growth projector of the company. And I was very tempted to join then, but again, Bell Labs was so comfortable. So believe it or not, what, what finally pushed me over the edge was I had a dream. And on Christmas break in 1990, I dreamed I was visiting synopsis and Dave Gregory came to meet me and the synopsis office had these huge coins, huge coins on the wall, kind of like Caesar's palace in Las Vegas. And Dave Gregory was wearing a huge diamond studded dollar sign as a kind of necklace and you know, the, the opulence of the situation and sense of riches was readily apparent. But then uh, Dave Gregory said, the key thing Kurt, is that we're all having such a good time. When I opened my eyes the next morning, I couldn't think of anything else but joining Synopsys. And I uh, showed up for work there a few weeks later.
3: Okay, so uh, back to Synopsys. Um, you went from individual contributor to CTO and senior vice president in seven years. How was that ride?
1: Uh, overall, I have to say it was an amazing seven years. I, I, I feel extraordinarily lucky to have joined Synopsys before the IPO and to live lived through those years of explosive growth. Uh, I have to <laughs> turn this into a bit of a confession. When I look at myself those days, two things really strike me. Uh, I was really ignorant and really immature. Uh, but you know, my saving grace was I just kept pushing ahead to do whatever I could to increase the success of the company. Um, as far as ignorance go, I didn't know the difference between sales and marketing. I had only the slightest idea about basic financials uh, or how Wall Street evaluated companies. And I didn't understand why, as the company grew, why we still weren't 80% engineering and and only 20% of everything else. And um, so that was just ignorance. But worse, I I had all these Bell Labs researcher prejudices, and these made me kind of immature and perhaps insufferable. I thought scientists and engineers were uniformly much much smarter than all the functions. I thought the whole function of the corporation was basically to advance science and technology so all in all, I had a, a, a lot to learn, um, but I had, I had a lot of good role models. Um, as the kind of meta role model, Art Dejuice, you know, look at him, he was always learning. Uh, I mean, frankly, I think he was learning faster and more broadly than me. He was always reflecting on what he didn't know and learning about it, soliciting other people's opinions. In terms of more individual functions, Harvey Jones was a great model of charismatic leadership and harvey i think implicitly taught me never to confuse working hard with working smart and showed how working smart was a lot more important i also think harvey was the first person to make me really realize that you know while engineers thought they were so smart many non-engineers were laughing all the way to the bank um finally rounding out my education i remember art telling me that no company grows rapidly, strictly by organic growth, but our acquisitions are notable. So I learned quite a bit about acquisitions at the time. Some I came to, to drive like Cadiz and Silicon Architects, others I simply uh, was involved, integral with like our failed acquisition uh, Chronologics, and then others like Epic and Logic Modeling because those were successful businesses uh, already, and it was really business driven acquisition, I was brought in, in the end as a kind of formal technical due diligence, but I have to say, all that experience of sitting on the buyer side during an acquisition has helped me immensely when I work with startups that are that are that are considering or getting acquired. Um, all in all, it was just a post, you know, invaluable postgraduate education in startups and how to scale a company. And then, well, you know, what? So, what did I do? Well, um, Synopsys was already doing well at Synthesis when I joined the Advanced Technology Group there. And although my expertise was primarily in synthesis, I wanted to do what I could do to ensure we we sustain technology le- leadership. And I felt the real challenge of the company was to expand into other areas. So I guess that's just my aggressive nature, but pretty much from the time I joined, I felt responsible to help Synopsys uh, become and remain a technology leader. And Art Art the DeJuice had told me early on that the key to getting promotion was to perform at the level you want to be promoted to. So quite naturally, while the titles changed quickly over those seven years, I always felt that my most important responsibilities at SNFs were uh, ensuring we had leading-edge technology, um, recruiting. I think this aspect is often underappreciated, but, you know, there's no better leverage of your time than recruiting the right people. And I worked hard to recruit the top technologists in the field and anticipating uh, technology trends, especially to anticipate what could potentially disrupt synopsis in the industry. So, in terms of… Research leadership, I, I think not only were our products leading that technology, but for years, um, Synopsys was the top publishing industrial group in EDA venues and often equaled, you know, the top uh, universities like uh, uh, University of California, Berkeley and publications or CMU. Um, I would say generally all our teams worked hard to make sure we had the best technology. Um, as I saw that to have visibility in the company, my advanced technology group needed to be more than kind of consultants for hire I had like at at peak I think 35 PhDs working for me we went to uh, develop ourselves within the group two products the first was formality which was for years the market leader in formal verification IC design and FPGA express which was at one time the most widely used FPGA synthesis tool and, and served our purpose of owning the seats of that market before anyone else could In terms of anticipating technology trends, uh, technologically, I think I helped steer the company towards a -a system-on-a-chip focus, which I I think I correctly anticipated as kind of a manifest destiny, and I can still remember arguing till late with a marketing director um, one Friday afternoon, as he pointed out, only 3% of chips at that time could be called a -a system-on-a-chip. Nevertheless, there's a way in which I wasn't satisfied. I'd I'd seen Daisy Mentor and Valad displace Calma by moving design to a higher level, I'd seen Cadence and Synopsys displaced Stacey and Mentor and uh, Valid by moving design to a higher level, and Moore's Law was still really impacting design, and I was 100% convinced that Synopsys was in danger of being displaced by a new technology at higher level. So this preoccupation of, with design at a higher level uh, some future design methodology led me to pushing our acquisition of CADIS, which brought Joachim Kunko in the company, and in other groups, in synopsis, the sort of development of be- behavioral compiler and other high-level language systems. Finally, two engineers in my group, uh, Stan Liao and Abhijit Ghosh, developed a compiler called Scenix, which ultimately became System C. Um, still, for all that effort, I, was say, I never quite felt satisfied. All my folks on a higher level became kind of, a, I think, a... a, a tragic flaw and made me overlook the the physical level more than i should have and you know retrospectively i really thank goodness for Brink gregory and his efforts on on physical compiler wow
0: so, so so you covered a lot of stuff in that answer but um, getting back to synthesis for a moment um design compiler managed to secure over 90 percent market share and create one of the most successful products probably in uh, eda history uh, what's your perspective on how synopsis achieved that
1: Uh, To be honest, I think most of the key elements of success were already present by the time I joined in 1991. Uh, There was great customer focus. The company had spent years trying to please tough potential customers like Intel. And I say potential customers because even though I think we worked with them continuously, trying to make them happy with synthesis, um, I think it was something like 1994 before they finally cut a big check. Um, I've, I've always felt that customer focus and core teams was probably Synopsys' greatest strength. Um, second factor is I think uh, re- relentless focus on superior technical results, and I can just remember, you know, Rick Waddell and and others at Synopsys had kind of a monomaniacal focus on getting superior quality of re- uh, results on synthesis. And you know, if the if sales or apps engineers came back with with something from a customer that said that they benched or benchmarked another tool and that tool did better, they just wouldn't rest till they figured it out and figured out how to improve. And, you know this is this is something you, you just can't teach. Uh, this, this served the company very well in an area that was so amenable to, to, to quantitative measurement. Um, and then you know, I think marketing deserves an important hat tip because building a moat with the dot live format, the proprietary dot live format, um, I think our superior results were important to kind of open the door and become a leader. But it was the .live format that really sealed us in. And I remember visiting the customer one time uh, saying that it took them six months to build the .live files for for the Synopsys design compiler. And although other companies were knocking on their door, uh, they weren't gonna go through that again for anybody else. Uh, we executed very well, but, you know, Synopsys execution is only uh, half the story. I mean, it may seem like manifest as now, but you know, I mean, Cadence really seemed to be the natural winner of the synthesis market. And the other side of the story is that our competitors fumbled away their advantages. And in the ensuing years, I made a point, you know, a little hobby to, to reach out to managers of logic synthesis and every single competitor that we had and ask them, you know, why they felt they had lost the synthesis market to Synopsys. And I was astonished By their answers, the most amazing answer came from one of the you know uh, uh, you know one of the one of the two companies that I think was expected to probably win the synthesis market, and that manager said, and I'm not exaggerating, we actually executed very well and were very successful, and you know how do you respond to that? I mean I think their customer their, their company never had. More than three percent of the, the the market share. So you know, I couldn't help but think, well, well if, if that was if that was excellent execution, what would a failure look like? Um, one startup of that early era that actually got out there a bit ahead of us said they had superior technology, uh, but uh, customers wouldn't listen because they had been out marketed by Synopsys, and that to me also sounded delusional. I'd seen the benchmarks; they 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 did not have superior technology. And another startup of that era said that logic synthesis was not a primary focus of theirs. They were really just trying to use logic synthesis to illustrate their AI system. So, you know, I, I hope I hope they were pleased with the results of that. And of all the people I talked to, I sought out, tracked down, like a private investor, you know, talked to wherever they were. The only person who gave me a sensible answer was Steve Law, who had overseen the uh, logic synthesis effort at Cadence. And he honestly admitted that they had just wasted their advantage. Uh, Cadence launched, because they had the money to, multiple groups doing logic synthesis. In fact, I I knew the managers of those groups, and he said they spent too much time bickering among themselves about who really owned this and how these these efforts would coordinate, and not enough time executing serving customers, and... You know they lost their advantage, uh, I you know, and that's how it happened. And I, I felt that was a very refreshing answer.
3: Yeah, your years at uh, synopsis sound like a great experience. So, what caused you to leave synopsis and return to academia?
1: You know, it's 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 people the way people phrase that, it's or it's funny the way people pr- phrase that they always say return to academia, but. The truth is I, I I never really thought of it as returning. I'd would i been at that point in the industry for 15 years and it really didn't feel like return, felt more like a new adventure. Um, In terms of the impetus to leave synopsis in a nutshell, it was impatience. I guess I would, the way I'd put it now that I I learned to be patient in research, but not in business. I kept wanting things to move faster. I kept wanting synopsis to make bolder moves. Um, Again, I, I think there was still some hint of this, like we're really in business to advance technology, you know. Um, and retrospectively, um, I think I got it wrong. We were, we were in business to make uh, money for for stockholders, uh, but you know, I, I hadn't internalized that. Um, and when I look back, I, I guess here's my analogy. I played tournament chess in high school, and I found my playing got a lot better when I stopped playing aggressive gambits in the opening. But settled down and let the other person, or other player, uh, make the first mistake. And uh, many years later, I told Art, EDA seems to be a field where you win by not losing. And that, that was not an insult. It, it harkened back to my uh, high school chess days. So there, there are a lot of ways to spend a lot of money chasing what seemed like novel markets in EDA. That do not exist and might never exist. And, and I think it's I, I think the lesson in the industry is better to let your competitor spend money on those or or a startup. Um, I I have to admit also I was I was a I was a bit burnt out. I, I I really was not doing a very good job of stress management in my last years synopsis. I was not spending enough time on vacations, so I was not doing meditation retreats. But on the positive side, going to Berkeley was 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 obviously obvious to me a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. Um, you know, to walk in as a tenured full professor uh, at Berkeley. So what had happened, the way that came about is in 1997 or so, the senior EDA faculty were kind of in unison, taking a step back. You know, sometimes I think people interpret my move as though, in some absolute sense, it was better to be a professor at Berkeley than CTO Synopsis and and I'm quick to remind that's, that's not at all true. Uh, you know, if, if I had been a professor at Berkeley for seven years or at that point I'd been in industry for 15 years, So let's say 15 years, and uh, Art called me up and offered me a nice package. Here's how it all it out. You know, you can openly hire thirty five PhDs, like you'd be CTO at Synopsys. I think going from academics to industry would have been a fine move. So, in other words, it was it was about making a change and 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 facing some new challenges.
0: Oh, so, so what kind of research did you do at Berkeley? It,
1: you know, turning back to Clark, a bit, even in at Synopsys, I'd observed that software problems and systems on a chip were dominating the hardware problems, and I, I, I remember so clearly in 1995 when I was at Synopsys, Pierre Plan, who was then working at Nortel, visited Synopsys, and on his visit, he showed a dive photo in which the memory on the system on the chip was was I think about half the chip, and the logic portion of, of, on the end was 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 probably less than 20 percent, and I realized at the moment that reducing somehow the instruction area of memory was going to save much more than than logic optimization of that, that, that 20% of the die. So so then turning the back and clock back forward to, to Berkeley and, um in the late 90s, there were chips like Intel's IXP-1200. And with those, we were beginning to see the beginnings of on-chip multiprocessors. And so for some years, uh, even within the, the GSRC, my uh, the on-chip multiprocessors were my research focus, and their software environments. And and while we did solid work over those years, there were many groups on it working on the same design problems, uh, both in academics and industry, um, and for these uh, for network processors and on-chip multiprocessors. So I would say, in terms of my research over these last now twenty-five years, um, we we better distinguished ourselves in in what could be done to accelerate applications given these on-chip multiprocessors in particular nvidia's graphic processor units and um, uh, Brian cotton you know kind of the breakthrough work in our work was Brian cotton Brian cotton zorro's work in 2008 which accelerated a popular machine learning algorithm called support vector machines in uh, Brian accelerated uh, SVM training by 15x and inference by 55x on a, on a single NVIDIA GPU, and, and that really was the first work to show how NVIDIA GPUs could accelerate machine learning algorithms. And that direction worked out well for the research group. It also worked out very well for NVIDIA, and, and it worked out very well for Brian Cotanzaro who became a VP of Applied machine, machine Learning Research there at NVIDIA just five years after his graduation. So. With that, accelerating machine learning algorithms became the direction of my research group uh, until you know 12, 2012, 2014, when neural nets began to displace traditional machine learning algorithms for computer vision and other applications. So then we uh, you know, about that time, let's say 2014 and 2015, we focused on accelerating the training of neural nets. Uh, however, even with acceleration in a GPU, the training of a convolutional neural net on a single GPU took weeks. So by this time, I've moved my group to Dave Patterson's lab, we the PARLAB, um, the Parallel Computing Lab, and we were quite used, used at that time to applying uh, uh, running applications on large parallel systems. So my student, Forrest Endola was the first to show that you could scale the training of a single convolutional neural network to 128 GPU processors, and then reduce the training time from weeks to a number of hours. Um, so this was very c- to the conventional wisdom at the time uh, you know a neural net model architecture is kind of analogous to a processor architecture and what force had done is effectively uh, create a very fast simulator for a neural net model architecture design so you know you could you could take a model and through his his rapid training you could evaluate how good that that neural net model architecture was so if we reason by analogy what do you do with a faster processor architectural simulator well of course you create a better microprocessor. So, you know, so what What do you do with a, a faster neural net model architecture? Well, you create a new neural net model. So about 10,000, I think, neural net model architectural simulations later, uh, Forrest had created SqueezeNet and it was the uh, same accuracy as AlexNet, which had become kind of the standard benchmark, but it was 50X smaller. And then further working with Bill Daly's student Song Khan, we Redu- reduce that even further, and the whole net could could occupy less than a, a megabyte. So again, we took a deep breath and we waited for applause from the community. Um, but we couldn't even get a paper in a conference. Uh, reviewers just done un- did not understand for the mainstream computer vision community, which we're trying to to you know speak to, what was interesting about a net that could run on a microcontroller. Didn't everybody have a GPU? Uh, nevertheless, I remember later that year going to the Embedded Vision Summit and seeing SqueezeNet, the net that uh, uh, Forrest had developed, on every every single booth that that from a microprocessor or or uh, digital signal processor vendor. It was just in booth after booth, and it was the because it was the first time you could demonstrate this new neural net technology in a small small processor. So eventually, a whole research area has kind of grown up around that work, and those of other people like Songhan, of applying uh, deep learning on small processors. It's basically called deep learning at the edge, embedded deep learning, or tiny ML. And uh, and meanwhile, although it couldn't get into, uh, you know, a prestigious conference, squeezeNet is approaching uh, eight thousand citations.
3: Very interesting, and and that led to your. Uh to your startup deep scale?
1: Yeah, my my, my co-founder, uh, Forresteen Dole, and I had looked at literally dozens of different computer vision applications that could benefit from a very small, efficient neural net like SqueezeNet, that could do these computer vision tests at the edge. Uh, but ultimately, I would say our customers found us. We could, we could, we could put these computer vision uh, algorithms in into a passenger car uh, within, within their um, uh, thermal design points of the processors that they had. Um, And it was interesting. I mean, uh, after we incorporated DeepScale, I was just amazed at the interest of all types. I mean, within just a couple months, Forrest, um, my co-founder Forrest and CEO, um, had um, talked to the president of GM. We'd met with other senior executives at a few other automotive OEMs. And it was routine that a a conversation would lead to some acquisition uh, overture of some type. Um so and and I reflected on my experience of synopsis. I just thought how long before when I was a synopsis, before I was talking to a senior vice president of one of our customers or or or, or my, my goodness, a president of, of, a, of a large company. So um, also we were so that 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 rolling really Curtis that gave us a lot of momentum and we, we were just the right spot in the Gardner's hype cycle and racing venture, Capital was, was really easy. So we were, we were off and running. Um, however, I, I love Reed Hoffman's image that a startup is like building an airplane while you've been dropped out of an airplane. So it really conveys the notion that you, you don't have any time for any mistakes. And although we've gotten all this interest from automotive OEMs and tier one suppliers, when it really came down to their big decision, you know, choosing their partners for future model cars, what software, what processors really go in there you know, the automotive market showed up, it showed its fame, conservatism, and everybody lined up with familiar su- suppliers like Mobileye. Uh, We were very happy to respond to an acquisition offer and join Andre Karpathi and Elon Musk at Tesla. And, you know, in terms of happily ever after, as, as, as people got a nice package for joining, uh, as Tesla stock rose 22X uh, in the next two years, uh, there were there were a lot of smiling faces. Uh,
3: okay, so uh, what do you miss most about EDA?
1: Well, I, I miss a couple things about EDA. First, you know, I miss you know working at the executive level in a in a significant company like Synopsys, which was which had so much potential for impact. When I, when I was at Synopsys as CTO, I worked with corporate vice presidents, senior vice presidents, sometimes even CEOs of our customers. And even as co-director of a lab at Berkeley, the Berkeley Deep Drive, I'm I'm most often dealing with project leaders or 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 perhaps a director. And the whole scope of what we do in a research lab may be very visionary, but, but the scope is obviously an impact. The scope and impact is, is typically more limited. Um, second, I miss the, the system complexity. I hope someday somebody writes a book elucidating about how the EDA design flow is one of the most sophisticated inventions of the human mind in all of history. And I, I am not exaggerating. Um, the EDA design flow spans from abstract system descriptions to atoms uh, and that's all through a software pipeline that contains literally dozens of problems that are NP-hard. Some problems we solve in EDA are not even NP-complete, that is to say they're, they're not contained in NP. Even simple two-level sum of products optimization is not contained in NP. It's harder than that. It's only contained in a higher complexity class, Sigma 2 in other words it's among the hardest of naturally occurring problems Uh, if you look at other areas of computer science oftentimes as soon as they hit an np hard problem then they wave the white flag and turn back and try something else in contrast in eda we had no alternative we just pushed through problem after problem and you know to 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 contrast it um, you know to something more contemporary deep learning is just in its infancy and the software systems we're building with deep learning are are quite powerful and sophisticated, but from a system standpoint, they're they're very simple compared to the EDA design flow for a state of the art system on a chip.
0: So so continuing on that topic, you know, in your DAC twenty twenty one keynote, you said you thought EDA had a lot to bring to deep learning. So how ha- have you seen that evolve?
1: Uh, I guess first, I'd like to use some terminology that usually used in in um, in politics, which is there are activists who promote causes but do not offer complete implemental solutions, like promoting universal basic income. I mean, who, who's going to pay for that? But then there are governmental workers, call them administrators. Politicians is kind of pejorative. But in any case, those who actually, you know, administer government and they have to make compromises in order to balance the needs of various groups. So, I've never really admired activist, activists. It's it's easy to present an extremist view without thinking holistically about a solution. Nevertheless, with that taxonomy, I guess I'm gonna to revert to what one might call EDA activism. And specifically, I wish that the EDA industry would be a bit bolder about moving up the value chain. It, it seems to me that the customers of EDA, particularly fabless semiconductor companies like NVIDIA, have been bolder about moving up the value chain. So with regard to deep learning and EDA, I, I think that EDA industry has had an opportunity to to offer more than tools for building neural net acceler- accelerators, but also that could also offer naturally tools for programming neural net accelerators and, and optimizing neural nets for applications. And, you know, perhaps I'm missing something, but I just don't see the EDA industry seizing that opportunity.
0: So, 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 what are you excited about these days?
1: Uh, I believe that the impact of large language models is is underhyped, and I and I and I, I, I really believe that. I think that large language models like ChatGPT and its many relatives, probably smaller relatives, are going to touch every aspect of our lives in years to come. Uh, some of my favorites are unlocking business intelligence through bringing the hidden data of comput- corporations alive, uh, improving education by giving every student a private tutor. I think it, they can, they're already changing marketing. I think uh, large language models will change sales process. And I think leveling the knowledge base of the entire world by making whatever is known in any one language available in every other, or in other words, machine translation. So I'm working on these topics in my research. And although I've never been kind of a spray and pray investor, I'm making as many bets as I can in startups these days in this area.
3: Okay. Um, any final thoughts, uh, as you look back over your career?
1: As a people person, what always stands out to me as I look over the, over the years is people and lasting friendships. And I, as I first went through this, I thought, well, this is a little bit sentimental, but I think it's actually very pragmatic. I mean, uh, you know, corporations don't hire people, hire you. Corporations don't open doors, people open doors. Uh, Corporations don't really make acquisitions, Uh, people make acquisitions. So, uh, as I look back, you know, I just look at people and I say, my life and career would have been entirely different if if not for a few people. A high school teacher who gave me encouragement, a college professor who suggested I switch from math to computer science. Uh, That was back in 1979. As I mentioned, John Golombeski, who gave me my first internship at Bell Labs, and Al Dumop, who gave me the opportunity to work in Bell Labs research. Um, Rick Riddell, Archie and Harvey Jones gave me the opportunity to work at Synopsys. Alberto San Giovanni Vincitoli was, I think, really the first person to give me confidence in my research in logic synthesis while I was at Bell Labs. And later he and Richard Newton brought me to Berkeley. Obviously my career would have been entirely different were it not for these individuals along the way. Uh, so that's on the research side. I think the same thing is in true in business. I'm just really proud that, that nearly every peer I worked with at Synopsys has invited me to work with them again. Penny Hersher invited me to work with Simplex. She went off to Simplex. Kurt Widows and Steve White, as they founded Zero In, ultimately sold to Mentor uh, Chris Rowan, I mentioned at TenSilica, and then he asked me again to work with him at, at Babel Labs. Uh, Paul Lippi, who is our uh, chief counsel at Synopsys, has asked me to help him uh, with his startup, Xmentium. And I'm really happy to say the two Coverity co founders, Andy Chow and I, uh, have invited me to play a role in their new ventures. It, 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 it really makes me feel great. And in, in short, if I could convey one thing, it's just all about people. I feel so grateful for the friends and mentors over the years and what we've created together. I, I know I'm not always the easiest person to get along with, uh, but I think everybody who knows me know that I really care about people. And um, I'm more of a sprinter than a marathon runner, but I, I do try to give my best to any endeavor.
2: Hi everyone, it's Debbie Dac again, and I want you to know that the 60th Dac program is now live and registration is open. There are three types of badges, full conference, the engineering track pass, and the complimentary I love Dac pass. Take your pick from all the diverse content that Dac has to offer across three floors of workshops, tutorials, panels, and technical presentations. Learn more about each registration pass and get registered today at DAC.com.
0: I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Kurt as much as we did and hope to see you at the conference next month. Thanks again for listening.